Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 120. The week that has passed is finally over. We have power back. Um, PG&E has returned service to most of us in California, in Northern California, with regards to all the fires and the, the powers that the, the power that they're shutting off. So, catching up on more work and catching up on more podcasts, and it required a variety of different situations this week of recording in different locations and just working, um, not even in coffee shops or anything, right? You don't have power in those locations. So luckily, in my truck, I have a uh, Wi-Fi signal coming in via the satellite XM radio service as well, or more more um, via OnStar. So a lot of this week, I worked in my truck. <laughs> So the main thing is um, having enough power slash um, gas in the engine so that we can um, get some things done, work offline, then upload and so forth. But yeah, here we are, episode 120. I sent out a podcast earlier this week with some thoughts and catching up as well, but now diving into a variety of topics and I caught myself not preaching, but um, um, on the ultra-endurance mindset and the tangents that that brings about it. Um, I talk a fair amount about the off-season and why we need to take some weeks off. I usually recommend two weeks um, of doing nothing, and I talk a lot about why that is and why it's so important and how it sets us up for a successful 2020 and what 2020 will mean then because of that. We never want to miss the opportunity to um, take advantage of that inner drive, that desire, that flame that burns within us. And when we just sort of move from week into week, month into month, that seems to sort of go to not an extinguished place, but more of a, it doesn't burn as hot. It is not as uh, as something new or different or creative or as exciting. So, And then I also talk about something that we all struggle with, with regards to learning and how hard it is, how uncomfortable it is taking on new skills, um, doing new disciplines, new sports, new adventures, new um, endurance events. But that also translates to the things we do in our everyday. Um, Learning isn't supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be awkward and uncomfortable. And I dive into a longer talk uh, discussion with myself um, about that. And I hope you find some tidbits out of both those early parts that apply to you and that makes sense and that allows you to move into not only the preseason now and 2020 as a more effective athlete, but as an athlete that is better prepared for the ups and downs, for the difficulties of the training, of the process, as I like to call it. In the meantime, and allowing us to sort of um, kick out of this preseason, offseason, whatever you want to call it, um, as a better athlete, not due to the training, but due to our mindset, due to our prep, due to our motivation, and a variety of other ways that that comes about. So I dive into some uh, podcasts. I dive into some emails this week, um, many of them um, based off of, of course, this ultra-endurance training and lifestyle, that being how um, we need to acclimate acclimate to heat 
at times for races and how heat acclimatization can help us, but also how to train heat and how to use it to our advantage for performance gains. I talk about multi-day events and how to best recover from them and not necessarily the details of what to take in order to recover better, but the process. Um, how to go about it, what I've found is best practices to prepare you for the next day and the next continuation of the event or the next um, challenge, disciplined, sport part of the event. Um, that process, that checklist, as I call it. And then I talk about older athletes and in ultra endurance and what it means and why and how we all have our individual history that makes us the athlete we are, and then therefore what that means for our future capabilities, abilities, growth, um, and getting fitter, stronger, faster, smarter, and how to use that to our advantage to continue to become more of an athlete and def the definition of an athlete that we want that to be. And finally, I talk about the age-old frustration of walking in order to keep our heart rate down and why and how that's important. And we all know why it's important and how it's important, but some thoughts around that, as well as why it's important to have accurate heart rate zones, how a chest strap and the watches and the data and why we want more data in order to be better prepared, better um narrowed down focused on our improvement and our gains because when it is that frustrating that we have to walk the smallest little details of improvement take us a long way they go a long way to keep us motivated to keep us engaged with what is quite boring and quite difficult to uh, wrap our minds around how is this walking how is this helping me run better right? And that lack of connection logic is supported a little bit better when we get tiny tidbits of positive feedback and reinforcement to continue on do, doing what we're doing and hoping, at that point, it's hoping when we're walking at Z2, um, it's hoping that we, were, we are getting better, fitter, stronger, um, a better aerobic platform. And so I dive into that a little bit too. But keep in mind with all of this, um, I get I have a lot of athletes doing the retests these days, and they send me their heart rate information and their splits. And I quite frequently write back to them, this is not for me. Um, sure, thank you for sharing. But this is for you, for you to document your progress. So for all of you, it's very easy to once you have your heart rate zones to take your retest numbers that if you wonder what they are, send me an email, I'll glad, glad, gladly break it down for you where they are. It's usually upper zone three, low zone four, so that you're not fully taxing yourself, but it's strong enough, fast enough that you're getting a good gauge of your running. And you're in the good form, feel, fitness, uh, light on feet, posture, technique, and so forth. Um, and let's say you do that once a month. That way you can compare at steady heart rate how you are improving, right? At steady heart rate, hopefully, confidently seeing that time, those five one-mile repeats, ever so gently getting faster and faster and faster. For some of you, when you have a fair amount of training time, in order to speed up that absorption process of zone two work, you are seeing bigger drops. I mean, don't get me wrong, at the beginning stages, whether it's for me, 
early in the preseason or for athletes who are just starting out with zone two aerobic work, if they put in the six to eight weeks on the front end, their next uh, five by one mile check-in is quite dramatically faster. So let's say the first one. So we test, right? We do the regular test, determine zones. Then two, three weeks later, we do check-in one. It means nothing if you don't have a variety of data points to follow up on. That's just your sort of line in the sand. And then from there, you go into, all right, four weeks post that first track check-in, you see how you've improved um, in those mile repeats. Remember, they're not best effort. They're at that specific retest number. And for, it's not uncommon to see quite a few athletes um, drop 40, 50, 60, 70 seconds per mile in those four weeks. Let's say they were at 1030 or 1010, and now all of a sudden they're doing 920s or 915s. Now, of course, the next one's not going to be equally of big of a drop, but the point here is that you definitely can have a big drop. Now, eventually it goes down maybe 10 or 12 or 25 seconds, but I still to this day, from my beginning of the season to when I want to be very fit, um, very prepared running-wise in this case, since we're using a running retest, um, definitely see 30, 40 seconds over a season um, where let's say I go uh, retest heart rate from 720s, and you got to be honest with yourself because you can't push the envelope to see it on day one. You want to push the envelope and see it accurately a week or two prior to your A event. But I'll start, let's say, maybe at 720s at the retest heart rate. Nothing dramatic, not very taxing, but and so therefore also not very fast. And I definitely can get down to 630s. Same heart rate. Just observing ever so gently. I'm getting more efficient, ever more... Um, smooth and um, quite honestly faster at that same heart rate it's taxing me less and less my body is more familiar used to it more efficient in its motions and therefore um, same heart rate a lot faster time and that's what we're looking to do so I think you can hear the music maybe in the background here as I'm sitting in my truck um, recording and working and getting some um, emails done at a baseball tournament with my son, but he's warming up. I don't need to sit outside in the cold and I'm going to finish this week's podcast. So, well, I hope you enjoy this week. Again, please let me know of questions. There's a few other things coming up in the podcast. Um, and here we go. We just keep moving on. Episode 120. Enjoy. This is a difficult time of year for many because it's the preseason, right? And we're finishing out our 2019 season and it becomes important that we take some time off. And no, not unstructured time, but time completely off. Two weeks will not hurt the body. will actually allow it to exhale, to repair, to rebuild, to prep for the 2020 season. And the challenge here is that we get into a routine that we just repeat and where there's a little thought to it. There not is a little. There is little thought to it. And because we are in that routine and repeating that, we don't get a chance to break out and understand what it is we're doing. So two weeks off, completely off, to reset, to give ourselves our New Year's. I wrote an article a few years ago for Triathlete Magazine where I talked about how triathletes, our New Year's 
is basically the week after Kona. It's where you reset the season, where the focus goes towards the next season, you close out the previous season, and you want to contemplate and reflect and prepare and rebuild towards what your next season will be. Well, there you have it, Winnie the guard dog. But yeah, so taking the New Year's, just like in the process of our current New Year's Day, where we make intentions and goals and sort of ruminate and reflect and contemplate about our past year and looking forward to how we want to grow or what changes we want to make for the next year, that's what those two weeks are for as well. Not only giving our body a physical break to really exhale, to do nothing, to allow it to sort of rebuild, but also spiritually to give ourselves a break, to find out what's important to us, to reconnect with um, not the focus because we've had focus throughout the season, but to reconnect with what drives us, what our values are, why we're doing this, and then where we want to take it. Over the course of a year and let's say a season, a variety of things happen with regards to the three-legged stool. And can we maintain this? Can we work through this? Can we handle this type of um, endeavor, this schedule, this routine? And again, two weeks off allows us to take that time of training time and go inwards and maybe think about, well, what do I want to get out of next year? How was the three-legged stool over this past season? How can I um, build upon it? How can I improve it? How can I make sure I'm paying attention and I'm present and engaged with the other two legs of the stool? Um, do I need to modify or adjust my desired outcomes, my future um, results, right? As we talked about last week with regards to results and the process. Again, two weeks off allows for that. Now, of course, a month off allows for that as well. But usually we get antsy um, after two weeks, as well as a month off really does take a while to reset the system with regards to fitness. Two weeks off, we get it back quite quickly. A month off, while I don't necessarily um, advocate against that, I'm just saying a month off requires, you know, six, eight weeks of rebuilding. Two weeks off requires about two weeks of rebuilding. Big difference. There's an exponential drop off there. Um, and in general, a month off might mean two weeks completely off. And then, um, you know, two weeks of choice and gradual re-entry and reinvigorating the routine of which maybe you've changed some of the routine or you've changed some of your insights and habits and so forth. But the other part that I often say to athletes is you are just as much an athlete by learning to take time off as you are an athlete by being committed and being committed to training. Your ability, just like we talked about recovery and rest and rejuvenation, your ability to do that also displays that you're an athlete, right? Being an athlete is a mindset, and anybody can be an athlete. And whether you're an elite athlete or just a beginner athlete, it's, an, it's a mindset. We've talked about that a lot, and I reiterate that a lot. You can be just as good as the world's best athlete in your mindset in your approach, in how you treat yourself and talk about yourself and view yourself and approach 
every day as an athlete. But to bring that to the two weeks off, your ability to take off is also discipline. It also requires commitment. And it also is the athlete mindset. The ability to not just do things to do things, that's exercising. Thoughtless activity, thoughtless workouts, that's exercising. Being an athlete, what's the intention? The intention for the next two weeks is to take time off. That takes discipline. That takes perseverance. That takes confidence. That's called being an athlete. That's the athlete's mindset. So, yes, two weeks off is important. Our New Year's is important. Um, And just that general check-in. A lot of athletes ask, well, what do I do all day? I mean, they don't ask that really. But they first come back with the initial response like, how do I fill my day? Of course, they'll fill it pretty quickly. I mean, we're not children. But my reason for saying that is because use that time also not the entire two weeks, but use some windows of time to go for a walk and think about what we want to do differently in the coming season. How are we going to grow? How am I progressing season over season? And not necessarily as an athlete by numbers, by results, by outcomes, but as a person, as an athlete, and as an athlete managing the three-legged stool. As an athlete that went pro in something other than sports, than the discipline or the the athletic event we're getting ready for. And that progression, who am I as a person? How am I growing as a person? Who am I versus last year? And who do I want to be in this coming year? That's all part of this resetting and our New Year's day, right? And... It's different for everybody. I mean, you might have not just done Kona. You might have not just closed out the season. Whatever it is, um, we all have different times where our New Year's kicks in. It might have been in September. It might be in December. Whatever it is, let's embrace the two weeks off and, again, have intention with that again and be an athlete in that window. I've talked a lot about how Hitting enter on the keyboard of your computer for the race is the easy part. Paying the entry fee is the easy part. Seeing yourself, envisioning yourself cross that finish line, doing it successfully, feeling fit, feeling competent, and going through the event with a smile on your face, fully connected, outdoors in nature, all that, that's the easy part. But the grind, the work, the process, the journey, when you train when you don't want to, when it's raining, when it's cold, when it's dark, when it's difficult, when we're tired, all that is the process, right? But there's also something different when it comes to doing an ultra endurance event or taking on an endurance adventure. And that is in many cases, we're stepping outside of our comfort zone And we're looking to learn something new. We're looking to grow into a new us, a new fitness level, a new competence, a new skill even. And gaining fitness or learning how to do zone two training, aerobic platform training, feels uncomfortable. But learning anything new is supposed to feel uncomfortable. It's foreign to us. 
And often we find the do part, the training part, the acquiring a skill part far more difficult and stressful than we had originally anticipated. We are outside of our comfort zone, often clumsy and tentative. You try to follow coaching directions, but stumble in front of others at the pool. The pool itself is a huge source of insecurity. You feel overwhelmed on the run. You struggle on the bike. It's all embarrassing at times. Even trail running, you have a difficulty descending. Others descend so much faster or they climb like mountain goats and you're tentative in any aspect. Mountain biking, how you descend, how you get over um, certain boulders or tree stumps or how you take turns, all that can make you feel inadequate. Here's the thing. While the act of learning something new is primarily intellectual, behavioral, or has a method to it, The experience of learning something new is primarily emotional. And it's the experience, that emotional experience of learning, of being a beginner and making mistakes, often publicly because we're in front of others, or so we often think that others are paying attention to us, that often keeps us or many people from even trying to learn or chipping away at becoming the endurance athlete they believe they can be. That's the thing. We believe, we have this sense deep down inside that we can be that athlete. But we don't want to deal with the embarrassment, uncomfort, discomfort, uncomfort, discomfort of overcoming that first learning curve. One thing I've always avoided as a coach is that commentary. Because people trust me as a leader, as the athlete I am from my past, as a coach, they see me a certain way. And they might lose trust in me if they see me struggling, if they saw how much of a beginner I am in many cases. And that's one thing, I, like I said, I avoid. I don't pretend to not be a beginner in many fields. And one of the things I pride myself on in my coaching is that I still do it, and I've done it all. In that respect, I've been the beginner in triathlon where I've raced in a Speedo and wired sunglasses, no top, just as padded Speedo like the old days and no socks and bike shoes, looked like a complete fool on my bike. And guess what? I was also the guy who, being way too tall, 6'1", buying a bike um, early on off of you know some used website, they didn't have eBay back then, um, with 650 wheels. Totally looked ridiculous, <laughs> me being as tall as I am on a triathlon bike with 650 wheels because I was told they're faster, they're more aero, they're more, you know, you'll be so fast at your Olympic distance triathlon. Yeah, that was me. Or me crawling, literally crawling to my finish at my first half Ironman in tears because I was so whipped by the distance. It knocked me on my ass. I was a beginner. I was a beginner in trail running. I was a beginner in mountain biking. I'm a beginner right now in gravel riding. When when people are just riding along in the dirt and their pebbles and the sand, and I'm tentative, and I fall off. Sure, my strength and my ability allows me to catch up, but I always fall off and have to catch up again quickly when gravel biking with friends. So be it. 
but at least I'm out there doing it, struggling, and I don't avoid it, right? I don't have that image that as a coach, I can't be seen like that. Luckily, I've always felt that you, the athlete, the client, the fellow competitor, the peer, wouldn't trust me as a leader, as a coach, if you didn't see me learning as a participant, as somebody out there doing it with you, finding out how hard things are, how hard Alaska man was, thinking that I have plenty of trail running experience and plenty of mountain running experience. It was harder than I thought. So, and yet, I understand the fear. I get it. Because while learning may not be that hard, being a learner, a beginner at something, can be very hard. Especially in a group, in a lot of tri clubs or running clubs or cycling groups. It's intimidating. And don't even start with me on how intimidating it is to walk into a master swim group. It's, it feels impossible to walk through those doors, especially because they always have a couple of lanes where everybody looks like a great swimmer. And I know, not that I've ever been the beginner swimmer. Um, I, I understand that, and you might roll your eyes, but I see the fear, the intimidation by newer athletes coming onto deck over the many years I've coached swim practices. And to this day, when I help out as a master swim coach, we have 18 lanes, some days 14 lanes, going at the same time in our pool, in our master swim program. Yeah, the, the far four, they're very fast. But the first four are complete beginners, yet still it's so intimidating. You don't know the process and the, what to do and what to grab or what the drills mean or why this is done and how to circle swim, how to split a lane with your teammates or your, uh, your lane mates, excuse me, how to read a clock. There's so many little things. I get it. And especially when we see ourselves and want to be seen by others as skilled and confident. I signed up for an Ironman. I should be able to get to a master swim. Again, part of the process, part of the journey. Overcoming those insecurities is part of your journey. Part of you finishing that Ironman, seeing yourself finishing it, means that you overcame these things and are now a comfortable master's group swimmer. No, it doesn't mean you're super fast. It means that you're comfortable going to the master swim workout and don't feel like an outsider, that you can relate to what they're doing and can therefore have an effective workout. In fact, being a beginner, being awkward, uncoordinated, in many cases even like I was um, when I started mountain biking, to this day mountain biking is so embarrassing. I would call myself inept. I always say, um, I can run down this hill or run up this hill, this single track faster than I'm mountain biking. And it can feel shameful, but it's not. It's just a stage we have to go through in order to become graceful and coordinated and competent, especially with mountain biking. Here I am, I live in the mountain biking Mecca, where it all originated in Marin County at the base of Mount Tam. I still haven't stepped through that doorway of properly learning how to mountain bike. I'm still timid. I still don't know how to corner. I still don't know how to climb over anything because I've always defaulted to trail running because I'm better at that. I stay in my safe zone.
It's a stage we have to go through in order to become graceful and coordinated and competent. And our willingness to experience this stage can hinder our, our unwillingness, excuse me, our unwillingness to experience this stage of growth can hinder our future growth. So I will never get to experience that joy, that fun, that rush of mountain biking, of downhill biking, mountain biking, or rolling terrain, or a longer mountain bike ride, because I've never gotten through that first stage. And therefore, my ability to mountain bike in any aspect, or enjoying swimming for some new master swimming, our path to becoming the athlete we want to be. And in so many cases, we envision ourselves being. That's the thing, too. In so many cases, we've already seen ourselves, see ourselves, and seen ourselves doing the act well. We take ourselves and put ourselves into the act of graceful XYZ sport. Like for me, when I think of mountain biking, I think of myself with a helmet on and the goggles and the, the armor on the shoulders and, and, you know, crushing a downhill or looking real cool coming around a corner that, you know, on dirt and, you know, making it look super competent and graceful. I see that. But yet what I actually do is completely different. It's none of that. You know, next month um, for my 50th, I am going to go to Maui. I've always wanted to learn to kite surf. Whoa, that's going to be funny. I am going to be awkward, embarrassed. I grew up on the water, water sports and on water. I grew up sailing. I know how to windsurf and I know how to open water swim. I know how to surf. I know how to do everything on the water. I'm still going to be embarrassed. I'm still going to be awkward. I'm still going to be tentative. I'm still going to be shy doing the new act, learning how to kiteboard. Kite doing it on the beach and then finally going out in the water and have these visions. I have these visions, of course, of the end result of who I will be. But I've got to go through the learning. I don't want my unwillingness to experience that stage, that awkwardness on the beach to hinder my future growth, my future outcome, my ability, my path to becoming the kiteboarder I envision myself being. And this is especially hard in areas where, where we already are experts, right? I'm an expert in swimming. I'm an expert in cycling. I'm an expert in triathlon and trail running. I'm an expert in open water and being on the you know open water swimming in Maui, for example. That I'm an expert at it, but now I'm doing something in the same environment that I'm completely awkward. I've been coaching for 25 plus years. I coach the most senior leaders of prominent companies, not only in athletics. I teach military operators, kids, pros, beginners. I've been studying coaching, endurance, and leadership for more than 30 years. Yes, more than I've been coaching. I run a company that focuses on helping people become the best version of themselves, athletically, or even beyond that. And I still spend weeks every year going to various and often unusual personal development programs to help me become a better coach. Never stop learning. 
right? This is especially true of areas where you're already an expert. I'm an expert, I'd like to say. I'm an expert in coaching, in endurance coaching, in trial running, and triathlon, and ultra endurance, and ultra man, and ultra cycling, and ultra swimming, and climbing, and a variety of different areas. But I don't stop learning. I don't want to lose that growth, that awkwardness, that uncomfortableness to expand my boundaries. At various times, I've fumbled, felt like a beginner, tried new techniques, and felt awkward in coaching. Even felt shame for not being better at a skill or a technique when it comes to my area of expertise. And those are hard feelings to feel. Again, they're associated around shame and guilt. I should know this. But they are the inescapable growth pains that come with learning, developing, and becoming better at something. I know in a few weeks I will fumble, feel like a beginner, and feel awkward, and try new techniques that will make me look like a clown while I'm trying to learn how to kiteboard. And I feel shame of not being better at learning it quick enough. I should be able to handle this. There will be moments like that. And that's part of the inescapable growth pains that come with learning a new skill, developing that skill to become better at that, which I signed up to do. (laughs) It's my choice. So in order to get my choice, in order to get my outcome, I have to overcome that obstacle in the way. So what can we do to make it a little easier to learn? Well, first, know that it is brave to be a beginner. Understand that it takes courage and vulnerability to expose your weaknesses and try new things. It makes you overall a better person. Once again, our athletic self can bleed into our overall version of ourselves. And learning and uncomfortable and growth in our athletic self allows us to then feel more at ease with it in our other areas of life. I thought to look for learning situations where the stakes are low, or at least I thought they were low, and not the best idea since coaching Little League Baseball, which I thought the stakes were low, is not really low stakes and requires a ton of learning. It was very valuable, but man, it is awkward. A, my baseball skills are not nowhere near, not nowhere near, they're nowhere near um, some of the parents. And so I'm awkward trying to make the right call or make the right decisions or make the right lineup or have the right drills or suggest the proper improvements for the children of these parents. But also it's high stakes for a lot of these kids. And also try to feel everything. That's what they call emotional courage. If you're willing to feel everything, embarrassment, shame, failure, awkwardness, then you can do anything. If you're willing to embrace the pain of that versus resist it, right? We've talked a lot on this podcast about suffering equals pain plus resistance. So accept the pain. Accept feeling awkward, failure, shame, embarrassment. Guess what? If I have the ability to accept that in a few weeks, I guarantee myself, I guarantee all of you in anything you're learning, you're going to learn it quicker. 
you're going to overcome those delays quicker and learn quicker because you're more open to failing and therefore grow quicker. If you can get through that master's workout that first time and ask all the questions, and it's already awkward. It's already embarrassing. You're already on deck and don't know what to do. You already don't know what to do in the lane or circle swim or what intervals mean and how far off the next person you should wait before you push off in circle swimming. Ask them all at once. Might as well be completely embarrassed, vulnerable all at one time. Get it out of the way. That means the next time that you show up, you're 80%, 90% past the awkwardness, past the embarrassment, and can then move on to the next phase of growth, which is truly learning, growing, applying, better technique, and so forth. And whatever you do, don't stop learning. Go to workshops. Go to master swim practices. Go to cycling groups, even though they might look super trendy and super high-end gear and super high-end bikes and super high-end clothes. Go ride with them. Go run with a running group, and they might look great and super fit, but be vulnerable. Push yourself, especially in the areas where you're already accomplishment, so you can get even better, right? You might be a decent triathlon swimmer, but move up a lane or two. Feel awkward. Feel um, uncomfortable. Feel out of place. It will only help you become an even better triathlon swimmer. Run with those that are more experienced. Run, ride with those that seem to have all the skills cycling or mountain biking, which I should be doing. Um, things like that, where you're around people that are better and you are the, the, the non-expert. It just helps your growth. It helps us become the athletes we want to be. Keep thinking of yourself as a learner. Take risks and try new things. That's why I'm so big on curating these new adventures, not new adventures, your adventures. Going through the full planning, logistics, training, um, simulations, all that is growth. It all takes you out of the packaged adventure and puts it on you and you're learning, you're growing, you're appreciating, you're understanding. You learn so much more as you take those risks, trying new things. And at first, your curated adventure might be an epic fail. But it might, with that epic fail a few times, make the experience of when you do complete, accomplish, achieve that curated adventure, it'll make it all so much more valuable. All right, enough preaching, and we'll dive into some email questions. So the first question revolves around heat adaptation and it's from october 2nd hi chris i'm training for my second ironman 70.3 which will be in Busselton near perth australia this december i expect temperatures on race day to be hot and dry maybe around 30 degrees celsius or more i have access to a sauna in the apartment building where i live would you have any tips on how i could integrate use of the sauna with my training to prepare for the heat on race day. Sauna before or after a training session? Interval training with sauna in between intervals. Are there any advantages with use of the sauna for recovery after hard sessions? 
Well, first of all, I would be very careful with regards to using sauna or any type of heat training in order to do the training, the adaptation, the stimulus whilst in sauna slash heat. Um, very little uh, known benefits to that, as well as the stress on the heart and the system and the body and the physiology makes that um, not an effective workout nor an effective heat adaptation. So you're sort of stuck in a gray zone of not having success on either adaptation or training effect. So now there's a few ways you can go about it. It's This is more about the time you spend in the heat. So I would recommend if I have a sauna available, I would recommend increasing the time maybe three times a week, um, the time you spend in a sauna as a separate sauna session. Um, so for example, you know, you start with a tolerance of maybe 10 to 12 minutes, um, three times a week, and then you work your way up to three times 20 and eventually up to maybe three times 40, um, which is a pretty long time in a sauna. You read, you sort of meditate, whatever you do to pass the time and you want to stay in there. You don't want to drink too much in there. I would say <clears throat> a small cup of water just to give yourself the sensation that you're hydrating, but not really having a hydrated effect. Dehydrated um, is actually a better training effect with regards to sauna and heat adaptation. So there's the mental aspect of heat adaptation in, in this case. And then there's, of course, the physiological aspect. Your ability to deal with the heat of a sauna will translate to the outdoors with regards to feeling uncomfortable in that heat. Um, usually a sauna isn't humidity, but you create a little micro environment of the heat of the sweat on you that almost gives it a humid feeling. Now, steam room, of course, similarly, um, or some saunas where you pour the water over the hot stones creates a little bit of that effect. But overall, it's about the heat adaptation in general. So let's say you're doing that and you've built up to three times 40 minutes. Another way to do it is also to do some easy training in a heated environment. But you have to be gradual about that and bring that up very slowly. So at first, let's say you're doing uh, indoor cycling in a room where you turn off the fan and gradually increase the time without fan of doing light training. No, no hard intervals or anything. Again, we want to separate the two. It's more about time in the heat. And so you're going, let's say, pretty easy. And as soon as the heart rate rises too much um, at that steady temperature and that steady effort, then you know that the heat adaptation has stopped with regards to the core temperature going up too high. And now you're overheating. So you can be there for a bit, but then you're basically done. But as you increase the time or increase the heat, you want to stay at a stable temperature um, with regards to a higher temperature. Um, what's interesting is that you might also find that as you increase your time in the heat, that you can start adding some load to your trainer, to the workload, to the cycling effort that you're doing. Again, nothing intervals or higher intensity or any type of focused work, but you can move up the wattage at the same steady heart rate at the same steady higher temperature.
And again, ambient temperature in some of these rooms, when you turn off the fan and what it is on your body in the little microclimate around your body is a lot hotter than what the temperature of the room might say it is. Because again, the core is heating up from the inside out. But in general, when it comes to this type of heat adaptation and training, there's a variety of benefits to it in general. Um, you know, training in the heat produces big jumps in endurance performance. A lot of athletes already know this, have felt it. You know, at the end of your summer, when you've trained a variety of weeks and months in the heat, our fitness is not only just better because we've had more time to train in outdoors, but because of the heat aspect, right? Um, there was a University of Oregon study back in 2010 where they had trained cyclists do 10 days of heat acclimation, 100 minutes of exercise in, in heat each day, and they saw a 5% jump in VO2 max um, compared to and measured in cool conditions, right? So VO2 max, cool conditions, 10 days heat uh, um training and acclimatization, then back to the cool conditions, 5% jump in VO2 max. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you're just better acclimated to the heat. It makes you, and dealing with the heat, it just makes you better in general. So, you know, you can use heat very similar to altitude, where you gradually adapt your time at heat, at altitude, and again, it has big... Um, improvements or effects on performance outcomes. But they also did another study a couple of years later where they used elite rowers and put them through a shorter protocol, just five days, like 90 minutes a day, it says. And the rowers were in a, an even hotter room, 40 degrees Celsius, and a fair amount of humidity, 60%. And they rowed at an in intensity just sufficient to keep their core temperature at a modest overheating level. So again, we want to keep the intensity low. The training itself wasn't particularly hard. The goal was to overheat the rowers, not to overwork them. So just the temperature was the stress, not the load. And the five-day acclimation period started two weeks before a major championship, and they saw a 1.5% increase amongst all those rowers who did that. Um, protocol in the 2000 meter rowing performance. So it's been widely known over the last few years that there's been a positive training effect from heat training. Um, so again, difference between heat acclimation and heat training. Um, and we all know, no, this is old news with regards to the biggest benefit of heat acclimation being plus plasma volume expansion. So just like in altitude, it stimulates your body's ability to produce more red blood cells. Heat stress stimulates your body to produce more plasma. And the result is a better cardiac output and a higher VO2 max at, at any given effort level. You can deliver more oxygen to the working muscles when you have more blood plasma volume. Um, so they are seeing numbers. They are looking at numbers around... Um, increases of up to 5% um, by, of, of increased blood plasma volume. And that is with elite athletes. They're saying that those athletes that they do heat acclimatization with in order to increase performance, boost performance, um, less elite athletes 
they're looking at a jump of six to seven percent. So pretty dramatic amount of blood volume plasma and um, plasma volume, excuse me. And that already is super interesting because again, delivering more oxygen to the working muscles, more volume and better output and better outcomes. Um, but it's also interesting to note that they also found that a slight state of dehydration is where you have the best training effect. Um, if you're too hydrated, not the same heat acclimatization effect on performance. If you're too dehydrated, also um, not as powerful. So just like we were saying 2% in ultra endurance events is about where our performance drops off. If we're 2% body weight of our body weight dehydrated, we see a 10% drop in um, performance output. But because heat acclimatization, if we're looking at um, not much of a performance gain whilst doing the acclimatization, therefore, if you're about 2 to 3% um, dehydrated based on body weight, they have found that that has a higher um, performance gain effect than if you are 4 or 5% dehydrated or not dehydrated at all. So a variety of different things going on there physiologically. Um, so, and, and then finally, they also found in this study, which fascinates me, by the way, that if you do a protocol of altitude and heat, you actually get almost double the effect. So spend a couple of weeks up at high, uh, up high to boost red blood cells, then a week in the heat to boost plasma volume, <laughs> then you're really ready to go. So um, yeah, I hope that helps with regards to the heat. So be real careful there. No intensity, increase the heat time. If you're going to do intervals, treadmill, things like that indoors, and get the heat acclimatization that way. Also, with regards to sauna, gently increase the time, I would say two to three times a week. More than 40 minutes, not really necessary. You're not going to increase your blood plasma volume that dramatically uh, as of anything over 40 minutes. So, I hope that helps. All right, this next question is a fun one. Hi, Chris. I've been listening to your podcast for some time now, and I'm consistently inspired by your advice, stories, and general approach to training. Thank you for making such valuable information available to all of us athletes. Parenthetically, I note that I have always hesitated to refer to myself as an athlete until I heard your podcast, which encouraged me to adopt the label more confidently. So thank you for that as well. Yes, we are all athletes. It is a mindset. It's not a skill. It's how we live. It's how we approach the day. It's how we approach that version of ourselves. And again, there's no difference between you and an Olympic champion in mindset and in how you approach the workout and in how you can recover and how you take care of your body and how you have intention and desired outcomes for each individual workout. And if you go about it like that, the difference is zero. The only thing they have is maybe more body care and um, can, that's their full-time job. But your ability to control those things for yourself, your best possible output, 
Michael Phelps is putting his best possible output into every workout just at his level when he was training, now that he's retired. Um, his mindset, your mindset, his prep, your prep, all can be the same. You know, Just because your workout is 45 minutes and his is two hours and 45 minutes, again, you can go in with intentions, desired outcomes, smart preparation, proper fueling and hydrating, proper mindset, all those things. So there's no difference. But anyway, um, I'm participating in an event called the Run Across Haiti in January of 2020 in a couple weeks. This was sent on September 19th. This is an event that benefits a charity called Work, which accompanies families in Haiti out of poverty through good, dignified jobs. That's awesome. Um, the whole event is just over 200 miles of running over eight days, with the seventh day being a rest day. Traversing the country from north to south. The daily distances range from 13 miles to 52 miles. I'm doing my best to prepare in advance for the challenge for, of this event. It will no doubt be present heat and nutrition being my primary concerns. Oh, I'm doing my best to prepare in advance for the challenges this event will no doubt present. present. But I'm particularly interested in any advice you could provide about maximizing recovery following each day of the run, including from a mental perspective. Well, <clears throat> hopefully the mental perspective won't be as much of the challenge because um, A, you have trained for it, and B, you're doing it for a bigger cause, bigger than you, and you're in the environment where you are impacting the people and seeing directly what your efforts and your care is doing. And that is wonderful right there. Um, but what I say to most athletes with... Um, a variety of stages with a variety of days of their events is to prepare a checklist that you can have in your simulations, in your prep, um, that you've gone through a few times after a long day, that you go through the checklist of items and things you need to do to wake up the next day in the best possible condition, ready to do it again. So whether it's ultra state multi-day stage races or ultraman i got those two mixed up um it's about a process of unwinding just because you've crossed the finish line of that day doesn't mean you're done doing the activity or doing the work for that day and that's the challenge and most get caught lost in time when they finish they're tired they just want to rest they want to, they're focused on recovery i get that but not in an efficient, timely manner. And the more timely and efficient you can be with your um, process, the quicker you get to downtime, maximum recovery time, maximum uptake of calories and fluids in order to then have a proper, best effort, restful night's sleep. So that checklist should have variety of foods and hydration that you want to take in or address as soon as you finish your day. That should have prep with regards to clothing, with regards to gear, with regards to where you're sleeping, with regards to where you want to end up after um, doing the checklist. If you're going to end up in your tent and be resting, 
with regards to the rest of the evening. I mean, it should be a timeline and a checklist. So let's say at the finish, you have a bottle of water ready so that it's in your hand and you sip at it while you are going through the other items on the checklist. That you have food readily available to eat what you're in the mood or what, what, what hits your palate or when you see it will um, agree with your current palate, but that you're getting food in. Um, not necessarily, obviously, junk food, but more food based on recovery and rebuilding. Um, in this case, you know, carbs are going to be important and um, versus proteins. There's not enough catabolic breakdown that the, the um, proteins are need to be overdone. Now, there's proteins in all foods, and the, the balance there is pretty good. But the, And again, also carbs, we don't need to have to go over heavy on carbs. But again, the, a good balance where you're eating rich food that is healthy um, and effective with regards to satiating but not filling you, with regards to nutrients but not overfilling you, um, with regards to tastefulness but not overfilling you or, or being unhealthy. So you have that in a window of, let's say, the first hour after being done. And again, going through the items that you can go through, if there's massage available, I'm not sure if this is the, the scenario for that, but for most um, athletes in stage races or let's say multi-day events cycling, you get your massage, you get your body taken care of, you get your fuel, you get your hydration, you get those minimums done first. Then from there, you start going through logistics. What do I need for tomorrow? What did I make note of yesterday that I need to address today? Batteries for headlamps, whatever that is, changing the clothes, finding new clothes, washing the clothes in case you're self-supported um, so that you can get to the far end of that checklist and start recovering and really shutting everything else down because things get real inefficient once you are scattered and running around and trying to move slowly and sleep and recover in between these tasks or is getting them done all right away in a calm deliberate intentional way so that then you can focus on the number one task of recovery getting off your legs doing nothing laying around getting sleep rebuilding yourself, allowing the calories and the, the food to take its effect of successful regeneration, all those things. So that becomes um, very helpful. And you want to sort of simulate this. The fun part, again, on some of these longer ultra endurance events and multi-day stage races is that you get to also go out in your environment or travel somewhere in in your part of the world where you can simulate what you're looking to do and experience it without any type of stressful environment being in the environment being in that adversity so enjoy that part of your fitness that you get to go out and simulate an overnight and stay in a tent or stay in a simple um hotel or motel and that you have this checklist and you work through it and have created the logistics of that or that you come back from a long training day and have it in your kitchen that you don't take do anything else or maybe you do it in the garage go through the checklist make sure everything's set up and how long that takes and how much skill concentration focus it needs to take in order to get it done in order to then work towards your recovery and your sleep. So the checklist is um, what I would recommend there. And it can go oh so many ways. I mean, it, it, I've had 
anywhere checklist where it's like um, email dad, let him know everything's okay, charge spot for GPS um, signal acquisition, um, answer a few um, you know social media questions, and then you know all those things. Checklist, checklist, check. If that's going to use your time and you feel good going to sleep or going to recovery mode or going into your sleeping bag or going to your hotel room or shutting it down and allowing your body to regenerate, if you feel good having done everything on that checklist, that's an awesome feeling. And it's part of your journey. It's part of the adventure. It's part of the things you need to get done in order to have a successful tomorrow. If posting a few things and updating a few things on social media and talking to your dad on the phone and doing some other random stuff is going to allow you to have a better day tomorrow, put them on the checklist for sure. So, and then you just repeat and rinse um, (laughs) all the days that you're doing this. Now, of course, with going into the off day, you have a little bit more time and that day is a different logistically, but and then mentally, I mean, again, so you're inspired, you're feeling good, but then it, you know, it all becomes a routine and it becomes hard. And, but again, what I always say with multi-day events like this, and when you're in those valleys is understanding this is what I signed up for. I didn't think it was going to be easy. That's why it's a challenge. That's why people are donating money. That's why I was inspired by this because it was hard. I signed up for hard and to think in the moment and be reminded of that, you know, I was reading about the, the, the feeling mind and the thinking mind. So you're feeling overwhelmed, tired, fatigued. Thinking mind knows that, yes, this is normal. This is supposed to happen. This is what I signed up for. Now we need those two to communicate effectively, to just allow the feeling brain to sort of say, wow, this is hard. This is exhausting. I'm not sure if I can do this. And then the thinking brain says, okay, that's totally valid. This is hard. (laughs) This is sort of, we knew it was going to be hard. We tried to push it out of our minds, but we knew it was going to be hard from the moment we signed up. But now we need to keep working through our checklist. Now we need to keep focusing on the task at hand because you know what's going to be harder? feeling mind feeling brain harder is going to be the sensation that you didn't finish this and you have to live with that for many many months if not years that's harder so feeling brain get going let's keep moving let's keep doing this thing i signed up for eight days i'm going to do eight days i realize it's hard to run 52 miles and then the next day a 10 miler and then another 23 miler and so forth so we're going to keep chipping away, keep working at this. And again, this is what we signed up for. So I hope that helps. All right. So email number three, this is a fun one. Let's take a look at this. Hi, Chris. I'm an avid fan of your podcast and would like some thoughts on the following, but first a brief CV of me. I'm 62 Australian expat living in Indonesia. Started running at 57, before that not fit, (laughs) smoked until 50, and have some restriction to my lung capacity. I have mild asthma, which I control easily. I have a fairly good understanding of human biomechanics and nutrition. I'm vegan. In one month, I will undertake my third ultra. 
very technical, very, very technical, a very technical 70K with an 18 hour cutoff. Um, my training has been quite good so far, but I've recently had to cut down from six to five days per week as I was not recovering so well. Though at the moment, I still run an average about 65 to 70 kilometers each week, 60% being at Z2. Um, main question is, can I still expect improvement, even slight, at my age, or is that not realistic? I do feel like I've reached my max aerobic fitness, but could be wrong. There's very little info around older athletes other than be careful. Boring. <laughs> Thanks, and keep up the fantastic work. Ian. Well, a variety of thoughts and inputs here. One, right off the top, of course, of course you can still improve. <laughs> Even slight. Um, because let's go backwards and unwind this differently. One, comparing ultras to ultras, you sort of have to go apples to apples. And unless you're doing the exact same one with the exact same lead up with the exact same type of training, it's hard to compare the two. Whereas to compare your performance, it gets gray and muddy. And we justify certain things and say that's why it's the same race and therefore we can compare it and they're very hard to do so in general it's more of a feeling and more of a state that we're in that we're feeling really fit strong powerful we know when we're recovering well as you do and secondly we know when we're bounding up a hill and feel strong and connected and fit you just know and you just feel better when you finish you feel like you're absorbing the work and so forth but the question here also becomes, but so far I've recently had to cut down from six to five days a week. Well, what kind of training were you doing? What kind of intensity? What kind of strength? What kind of, so it's hard to say what improvements there still could be, but I definitely believe there could be dramatic improvements. Um, you know, there's, there's guys still running their best events, their best marathon times, up into their mid 50s so i believe there's definitely possibility to continue since you started late and the bar quite honestly is pretty low because you don't have a lot of history of going through your 30s and 40s and 50s of results to give you numbers to see where the drop off is i believe you're probably still absorbing fitness it's a question of how you're absorbing it do you need a different format do you need more strength do you need different recovery format um, should you be training one week big volume two weeks easy volume and less volume in order to absorb the bigger weeks bigger and better and then recover two weeks. Do you need more recovery days in between stimulus? Let's say you go three days on, two days off, or four days on, two days off. So there's many, many ways to skin that cat. Excuse that term. But um, the point is, we don't know that. And by, by not knowing that, I default to absolutely not. We can still get stronger, fitter, better, stronger, uh, better, stronger fitter, stronger, better, smarter, faster, because again, we're using our training and the stimulus in different ways and constantly being creative on how we are going to become a better athlete tomorrow than we are today. Nutrition, recovery, sleep, strength, different prescriptions, more rest, different stimulus, more intensity, longer aerobic run. Who knows? Again, until we get into the weeds, until we know, until we feel it, until we see it, until we try all those different things, we don't know. But 
the question you ask, can I still expect improvement? I would. Now, I turn 50 next um, month and a month from tomorrow. And no, I can't expect improvement to my 30-year-old self. Of course not. But can I continue to stay? For me, improvement for me means um, staying connected to a fitness where I'm still very strong, very fit, very capable, very able to do most of the events and in a range of what I used to? Absolutely, right? And the, the qualification, the definition changes, of course, as we get older. But you don't have a lot of history. So I'd be willing to take your, since you started running at 57, I'd be willing to take your 59 running time of a marathon and improve upon that when you're 67, right? Um, I might have talked about this before, but they've done studies where they've taken us um, 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 uh, samples of muscle sites, of muscle biopsy, excuse me, samples of muscle sites, <laughs> a biopsy, but they can do it in different ways these days. They don't have to cut you. Um, where they show with the proper stimulus, the proper strength training, proper nutrition and so forth, in a healthy, fit individual that you can't tell the difference between that muscle of a 73-year-old, 75-year-old, 72-year-old-ish, right around there, um, definitely 68, 69-year-old, and a 30-year-old. They can't. Um, now, overall, but that's at the muscle site. But that just shows our muscles, our body can stay young and vibrant and strong and connected and powerful um, up until late 60s, early 70s. Absolutely. There's a drop-off in other ways, and then there's a it's been shown in studies that then the drop-off is quite dramatic. Again, nothing that's the end of the world. So you slow down a bit, but you're still a really fit 75-year-old. Like my entire excitement in the future of my own endurance athletics is to be a really fit, capable, um, fun-loving, curious endurance athlete when I'm older. I want to be the fit OG, um, you know, where it's like I can still do the things I want to do. I'm not limited by my body, by my mind, by my ability. It's more I'm limited by time because there's so many things I want to do. And so what are we, what am I, what are people around me, what are the people I coach in this age category and a little bit older, um, what are we doing today to invest in that future self that can have even more fun? That's the way I see it. Um, I, want, I don't want things limiting me. I want to be able to make those decisions myself. But if I want to go run, uh, you know, 100K when I'm 65, then I I want to be connected to the fitness to be able to make that decision. Now, will I be that fit? No, but be connected to it so that with training and the proper care, I can do that. And it's the same thing for you, Ian. So hope that helps. All right, last email for this week, but a good one, I believe. Hi, Chris. I'm not sure how to begin this email, but without cliche of saying that I really admire your work and your approach to training, I love your podcast and you really inspire me to put my ego to the side and just focus on the process. <laughs> I know the rest of this email, so keep that in mind. I love your quotes of Roosevelt. Comparison is a thief of, jo 
Thief of Joy, love that one too. I use it a lot. And your own letting your fitness unfold. There's something very spiritual in your words that allows me to reconnect with nature and balance my three-legged stool. Good. Um, by all means, I have an, I'm an, by all means, I'm an endurance athlete. Maybe not an endurance athlete. I'm not sure. But I love running and I would really appreciate it when you have some time if you could calculate my heart rate zones. I've done that in the meantime for this athlete. And um, yeah, so to give you a bit of background, I'm 29. Um, he's plant-based, never a sporty person growing up. Did the minimum to get by, I suppose. The occasional 10Ks. Um, working hard to become a qualified clinical psychologist one day. Love that too. It started with once a week of running and culminated to last four months with four times a week prior to my first half marathon in early September. Two-hour Mary, that's awesome, which I'm quite proud of. You should be. With that being said, training in the gray zone, pace work, a couple of short runs a week with quicker pace intervals, hill reps, combined with longer runs over the weekend, almost got my me to my sub two hours half marathon goal. I'm really hoping that I could take my training to the next level with heart rate training and core exercises to complete <clears throat> my marathon in sub four hours. The how and when is very much out of the equation, but it is the goal that I would like to work for, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely makes sense. Here are my questions for the podcast. How accurate are these preset heart rate zones by your watch? I use a Garmin 4Runner 235, don't have a chest strap yet. <laughs> there you have it. My zone 2 is set to 111 to 129. I'm having to walk all the time to stay in zone 2. Only the thought of jogging spikes my heart rate to zone 3, and if I jog a bit too fast, I'm in Z4. Is my heart that weak aerobic-wise? I'll go through this one one at a time before I jump to the next one. <clears throat> so, one, we, we've discussed a lot on this podcast that the watch function with the, on the wrist and it reading via the light anodes is not an effective measurement of heart rate. It's good I would say 75% of the time. I wear the Kronos now, and I see it all the time. It's just not accurate enough consistently. Um, I've connected my heart rate strap via the Antenna Plus. Even then, it's a little confusing sometimes because it's trying to default to one or the other. Maybe a setting I need to work on. But I also know the Garmin strap is fantastic. You can get a used one or um, anyone on eBay or on Amazon. I would highly recommend that. Just connect it to your, to your watch. <laughs> Winnie, that is, our other, that is our other dog walking around back there, goofball. <laughs> She's a barker. <laughs> It's our other little dog walking around in the backyard and she's barking at it. Um, so I would recommend getting a heart rate strap. That's very important. Now, the watch zones, actually, across the board, they're more accurate than I used to think. I used to think that they were off by a lot more, but they're pretty good in the range with where you need to be. Um, I've given this athlete, in this case, his five by one mile test data. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's pretty close to those um, zones. Now, the reason I would always want you to field test in general is because you want to get as much data to apply your training to as possible. 
Not that it's that I'm a data junkie, but I just want to validate things first and then train, right? If I can triangulate the data between my watch and a field test and maybe, you know, the local neighborhood 10K and get the values out of that and the data out of that, then now I'm talking that I, oh, Winnie, stop, that I have enough input and enough insight to now have really valid accurate heart rate zones specifically for me. So that's the other thing. You have to walk in zone two, yes. It has nothing to do, well, it has something to do with your heart being weak and aerobic wise, but keep in mind, it takes a while to build our aerobic engine. It is not an overnight process. And for most of us, especially as we're younger, because we were taught to train hard or it's not really training at all, we have destroyed, you literally can break down, destroy your aerobic engine whilst building the anaerobic engine. So the understanding has to be, all right, how do I rebuild that zone two engine, that aerobic engine? And gradually, yes, dismantle the anaerobic one. So it's this, this play between the two that works like that. And so, yes, it does require a lot of walking. But like I say to everybody, your investment of maximizing that time will quickly, six to eight weeks, transition to that soon you're jogging, then you're running, then you're really working. But it only starts with step one. And in the beginning, it does require that walking. I am sorry to say that. Um, jog a bit too fast? Agreed. You, you jump to zone four. Try to keep the running on flatter surface. Keep it simple like that, right? Um, so that you don't spike due to the terrain. Obviously, temperatures as well. And so go from there. Then we also have, for all of us that need to walk to stay in zone two, do you have any tips on how we can shake off the feeling that we're not working out? Well, the feeling is correct. Um, it does feel like we're not working out. Um, but again, the heart doesn't know the difference and you're building the platform. And you may say, well, how is walking helping my running? It is an investment. It takes time. I realize that it's frustrating. Um, but we want to build a bigger, better engine. And while that engine is in the garage dismantled and being rebuilt, it's not moving. It's not putting out horsepower. It's not doing anything on the road or on the track. So therefore, that's the same thing. It's rebuilding the engine. We're taking our time to have a bigger motor, bigger um, engine to put more effort through it. And it is an annoying feeling and it is frustrating. But again, it's just like investing. Um, I'm putting a few dollars, a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars away every month. I could really use that money right now, but I am doing it despite not seeing any type of significant gains in that investment. You know, something invested here or there getting me 20, 30, 40, a couple hundred dollars here, a couple hundred dollars there. It doesn't look like much, but it's the start of accumulating an investment account that in five, 10 years from now, in five, six months from now, from a training perspective, will pay big dividends. The other part is while I'm walking, I'm thinking about the quality and the intensity and the value of the shorter, higher intensity workouts. I'm making those count. Those are my um, payoff. 
Um, and then I sacrifice for that by walking, jogging, shuffling on the weekends with my longer stuff. So, but in general, also I would continue to test that, make sure that those zones are correct so that you're gradually, um, you know, moving in the right zone. Also stay in the middle of the zone so that you have a good valuable input there. And yeah, um, it just feels ridiculous at, at times to be all geared up, ready to run, knowing that you're capable of running, but have to walk. I'm trying to really hard to stay connected, admire my surroundings, but it's driving me absolutely mad at times. I get it. And I totally respect the discipline that you're showing. There's days where you just want to go out and run. And again, you're looking for the best possible outcome, but you'll get your four hour marathon, even if you occasionally just go out and run easy, but you're running. Are you breaking down your aerobic system? No. Are you, if you go out and do a two hour tempo run and run hard, yes, you're affecting your aerobic energy system. And if you do that every weekend, yes, you are affecting that. But occasionally to go out and do an hour and 15, hour and a half easy run, despite it being out of your zone, but you you feel that it's quite easy, you recover quickly, you're breathing very well and light, it's okay. Again, is it going to delay your future progress? Nothing dramatic if you're not doing it a lot. Um, is it going to impact your ability to do a, get a sub four? No, not really. You're still going to have the majority of your time at zone two. If you look at the ratios and the percentages, you're going to be successful either way. And again, how and when, right? If you go about, go about this by occasionally running for your sanity, but it's easy, you're affecting the how. That's fine. You're still going to achieve your goal. How and when, it's not a question of if. So I hope that helps. All right, that should do it this week on the Weekly Word Podcast. Um, some housekeeping items like I'd had last week with regards to the trail running camp and regards to the coast ride. Um, I have a long overdue podcast due with Emily with regards to nutrition. And what I'm going to do just because I have so many inquiries and a lot of athletes who are working with her in general. Um, I'm going to have a monthly podcast with Emily where we do all nutrition-related questions. And I have to get better <laughs> growing, right? Learning is supposed to be uncomfortable. Um, I have to learn to be better about having her on and being organized for that and coordinating that. And I will do that starting in November. Uh, today's November 1. It's a good time to start that. And uh, yeah, and hopefully you will all send me a few nutrition-related questions. I have about, if I look at nutrition, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 questions sitting in my um, episode questions email specifically to nutrition. Um, and uh, I would love to get a few more, and Emily and I, as a conversation, can go through it. And um, we'll have a monthly, weekly word podcast focused, centered around nutrition. So that's a housekeeping item. And then, yeah, I wanted to thank you all for the podcast, for the amazing interest in this podcast. It's been <laughs> quite remarkable, the growth and the reach and the people who've been reaching out from literally around the world who've been listening to this podcast at events where I meet people where they say they've listened to the podcast. So 
I thank you all. I know it's amazing to me to talk for an hour and a half each week and people enjoying the data and the listening and the topics and the story we talk about, it just being me. I know I'm talking with a few people to come on the podcast versus just listener consults and interviews. So um, that's coming also. But yeah, until then, thank you so much. Winnie says goodbye too. She's finally resting and not barking at everybody. This was a Winnie episode. She barked a lot. Have a great week, everybody. And I will talk to you on the other side of the next training week for episode 121.